do you have a favorite birth story? Birth story, somebody that you knew the way that they were born. I've got a few. Um, one comes from a good friend of mine, Moochie. Uh, that is his real name, Moochie. Um, it's short for Onye Muche Chuku, which means no one knows God's mind. I've known Moochie for about 15 years, and I probably heard this story 150 times of how he got his name. He talked about he was born, but as he was born, he was born dead, born lifeless. And so as his parents were freaking out, the doctors revived him and brought him back to life, and they named him Onye Muchechuku. No one knows God's mind. He's, God's grace in his life was there from the time that he came out, and it was a sign that God had a purpose for him. Another one of my birth stories that I like is of my daughter, Ava. If you know me for 15 minutes, you've probably heard this story 150 times. She was born premature, three and a half pounds. And from the time that she came out, she couldn't breathe on her own, and she was just feisty and a fighter. And two years later, God preserved her life, and she's the same Little girl, feisty and a fighter, she came in, and her birth wasn't the finish line for her. It was the start of this struggle. God preserved her for a purpose. I'm sure if we took some time, we could go around the rooms and hear a bunch of those same stories. Uh, But what I want to do and what we want to take our time on um, is to look at the birth story of Jesus Christ, which... I think it's going to be much more remarkable than any of the ones that we may find here in this room. He comes into the world and he has a purpose that's going to be threatened every step of the way. As I said before, we've titled this series that we're going to be in for the rest of the year, Painting Jesus, because here's it, we really want you to know Jesus. And I mean really, really know him. We talk all the time about how Christianity is not about a religion, it's about a relationship, right? How it's about a person, it's not about principles. But I think it's hard because week in and week out, when we come to church, when we come to our Bibles, when we spend time praying, when we try to look for direction in life, we're constantly looking for principles, Things to do, how to make my life better, how to make my marriage better, how to succeed in work, how to succeed in friendships. And all those things are important and good things, but they're not the, the main thing. We, we, we come to the Bible and we want instructions. And let me tell you, God does give us instructions about how we should live so that it leads us to prosperity and health. But the thing is, God does so much more than that. God's law was never meant to stop there. His law was to lead us to him so that we would fall in love with him. That's why David writes Psalm 119 where every one of the 170 plus verses is about the law, but his delight in the law. It's in the law giver. The whole Bible is about Jesus. It's been said that a picture paints a thousand words, and like we said last week, the Gospel of Matthew is about 18,000 words that paint this picture of Jesus. And I really want this to cement, and we 
say it all the time here as a church, but as you come to the Bible, the Bible is more like a window than it is a mirror. The Bible's written for you, but the Bible is not about you primarily. If you come to the Bible as if it's about you, then you're going to come in and be disappointed. Or if by chance you're encouraged by all the stuff that you read about you, you're probably reading it wrong. The Bible's not a book for you to look and it reflects back on you just what you should do and how you should live. The Bible is a book that's a window that's meant to point you and help you see what Jesus is like. And hear me, as you really see that, then your life really changes. I just bring all of that up to to a day because um, today is going to feel very windowy, if I could use that word. There's lots of text here and there's not going to be a whole lot of application. You go out and do this and do that. You look through the gospel of Matthew and what you find is what makes this gospel unique is that it has these like five large discourses. So if you want to wrestle with the things that Jesus said about life and you want to see one of the reasons why he's so polarized, read the Gospel of Matthew and what you'll find are these five long discourses that he gives. The interesting thing is, um, if you read your Bible and yours has red red letters where Christ speaks, what you'll find is that those red letters don't start until chapter 3. And you'll find them in every other chapter, but in the first two chapters, Jesus doesn't say a word. But what you'll find is that the responses to him are polarizing. Jesus is going to come into the world, and what you're going to find is before before he's even potty trained, he's going to break into this broken world this intent on trying to break him and usher him out, not because of anything that he said, but the truth uh, uh, about him. And so the reason why we say that we want you to know Jesus is that the most important decision that you will make that will affect everything else in your life is not just who you marry, where you live, what job you'll take. The most important decision that will affect and shape Everything else is how you orient yourselves to Jesus. That is going to be the dividing line for everybody that has ever existed. How do you relate to Jesus? And so what I want to do is I just want to make sure that you have the right picture of him. Matthew chapter 1, what we're going to see is this, that is, Jesus comes into the world, the very first thing that we're going to see about God is this. God guides and God guards. God guides and God guards. As as we read this text, if last week, right, the genealogy was about the presentation of Christ, this week is about the preservation of him. And what you find is that you can tell the value of something by the lengths that people take to preserve it, 
right, getting ready to drive a new car off the lot, they make sure you have full coverage. You go to an art museum, precious art is not just lying around. It's back behind glass and screens. This guy, John Ranson, uh, six years ago, a writer for GQ, uh, he walked the, the streets of New York and he hired fake paparazzi and security. And as he walked around, people saw how he was protected and they said, he must be important. I want to take a picture with that guy. What, what we see here in this text is the way that Jesus was protected from his birth. All right, it's, it's lots of text here, and so I just want to give a disclaimer. This is going to feel like an airplane ride. So the goal is we just want to take away the big picture. There's these five small stories about how Christ speaks to Joseph in dreams, and then the wise men in dreams, and then Joseph again in dreams, and then Joseph again in dreams again. All of this is meant to preserve Christ's life, and in his preservation, what we're going to see is his importance. So the very first one is this, uh, God guides and God guards. It's going to be God, not people's intuition or their good intentions that's going to lead the way in preserving the life of Christ. Look here in one Verse 18, it starts here and it says this, the birth of Jesus Christ came about this way. After his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, it was discovered before they came together that she was pregnant from the Holy Spirit. So her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her publicly, decided to divorce her secretly. But after he had considered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus, because he will save his people from his sins. A little bit of context works needed. Here's what takes place. Uh, back in this day, the word engaged here is all off. It's more of a betrothal. A betrothal was not an engagement the way that you and I think things, right? I get down on one knee, I ask you to marry me, and then if things go well in between that and the time that we're to get wed, we'll still go through. If not, then we call it off. A betrothal was really like the first part of marriage. Bank accounts join. Joseph's already paid the bride price. He's already all in. So what would take place in, in these days is if the woman was found to have an adulterous relationship, it's not like you could just let it slide. For the man to let it slide would be for him to condone what took place. So what they had set up is that when this took place, because the man was all in, he could have taken her to court and said, hey, I know we were supposed to be in this thing together, and I paid this big bride price uh, but I'm actually going to need my money and my stuff back. And, and, and it would have been this big mark of shame on her. The Bible says that Joseph was a righteous man because look at this. There's nothing in the text here that makes you and I think that he knew that she was pregnant by the Holy Spirit. He thinks she stepped out on him. She was unfaithful. And I have every right to get back 
not just my name, but all the stuff that I gave her and to shame her. But you have this guy who's righteous in that he's not even going to use the law in this regard to come down on her. But his justice is mixed with compassion. And he says, I'd much rather minimize the shame that she feels. Let's bring in a few folks into the house the witnesses that we need, and let me send her on her way. Well-intentioned, but he's misguided. So here's what God does. God intervenes, gives him this dream, and tells him that he's just done the impossible. And what God asks him to do is not just to minimize her shame, but to go through with the marriage and to take on some of her shame. Who's going to believe him? That, uh, yeah, this is my wife. We haven't been intimate. She hasn't stepped out on me. It was actually the spirit of God that impregnated me. It sounds as absurd now to us as it did back then. But God guides him. And God guards, he protects Jesus from being born into a world that wasn't favorable to women who had children outside of wedlock. And more than that, he's adopted into this family. God guides and God guards. God guards, guides Joseph. And then what we're going to do is we're going to go on and see these wise men. What, 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 what takes place at the start of chapter, chapter 2 is this. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Look, for we saw his star at its rising, and we have come to worship him. What's odd about this here is what you have... Uh, We're not sure how many wise men that they are. Some folks think that it's three wise men because they brought three gifts. But for anybody that's been to a wedding, you know the amount of gifts doesn't necessarily tell you how many people came. All we know about these wise men, listen, is that they're from the east. They're outsiders. They are people unfamiliar with the specifics of this God. More than that, what we see is this, the unique way that God guides them to him. It seems like that they were, uh, it seems like they were astrologers or folks that put their faith in something that God condemns, but look at what God does. God is leading pagans to him using categories that they have. Showing you, look, that this God is not just the God of the people that have their theology right here in this box. This God is a God of the nations that's concerned with leading outsiders to him. So what you and I have to do, what we have to take into account is we have to admit at least the presence of mystery in the way that God leads folks. 
I've yeah, yeah, said this here before, but there was this um, person that was a part of our church, and she said, this is how I was led to the Lord. I went to a church where the pastor was up there, and he did not preach as if the Bible was about Jesus. He preached as if the Bible was about money and me. And what he said from the stage is, don't take my word for it. Read it for yourself. And she's like, so I went home and I read it for myself. And I saw, uh, this book really seems like it's about Jesus. And God used that to lead him to himself. So you and I have to sit back and admit the presence of mystery. But we also have to know this. Look, these wise men were led to the front door. But what was the key for them to get in? Not the mystery. Herod calls the chief priests and the scribes and says, hey, they came here by this star. Where is Jesus going to be born? And do you know what the chief priests and scribes do? They go to the scriptures. God can lead people to the front door in, in a bunch of ways. But God has provided access that the key to get into the front door has come not just through what's mysterious, but through the things that he's already revealed. So you and I should hold mystery and revelation very, very close. God brings them in guidance. Then Herod comes up with this thing, hey, tell me where he's at so that I can go and worship him. They go. And it seems like this, that there's nothing inside of them that knows that Herod's really trying to kill them. But look here in verse 12. Look, once again, and being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they return to their own country by another route. God guides and God guards. You go through the rest of this text and what you'll find out is there's three more times that dreams are mentioned. Joseph. God comes to him in verse 13. It says this, after they were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, get up, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and escaped to Egypt. Drop down to verse 19. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, because those who intended to kill the child are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and entered the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was ruling over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being warned, in a dream, he withdrew to the region of Galilee. Then he went and settled in a town called Nazareth to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. The big picture is this. When it comes to the preservation of Christ's life, what we see here is God is breaking into history with miraculous power, speaking to all of these folks that are well-intentioned but misguided through these dreams. God guides and God guards. That's the big point. Here's what I want you to see as, as, uh, as we talk through uh, dreams. The focus should be on God's intervention, not on the intricacies of how he'll use dreams or the in 
interpretations. When it comes to the Bible, we just don't have that kind of instructions about how God will use them and what this means and what that means. The point of this is just to say, Jesus is so important to what God is trying to do in the world that look at the way that God steps in to preserve his life a bunch of times in a way that we really don't see God with anybody else. In each of these cases, what you see as well is that God's miraculous leading was illuminated by the obedience of the people that God led. So it's one thing for God to speak and tell Joseph or the wise men or the rest of the crew to go. It's another thing for them to listen and do what God actually said. And what you find out is all of them do it. And here's what I want you to know about faith and trust in God. Um, It's always costly. It costs them something. Do you know what it costs Joseph? His reputation. He's, as a result of his obedience to God, he is essentially going to lose the respect of the powerful and influential. As a result of the commitment that he made to to God not to abandon Mary and save his own name, but to trust God at his word that he's actually done the impossible, it's going to cause him to live with this lifelong stigma. The wise men obeyed God and they found Jesus. And it wasn't their reputation that they gave up. It was their riches. They willingly laid it down. Nobody coerced them. It's these men of status. They come to a baby. And hear this. They worship him, not because of anything that he said so far, but because of who he is. Joseph's devotion and their delight was all rooted in who Jesus was. I wonder how important your reputation is to you. I wonder how hard it is for you to lay your reputation down in light of obeying Jesus. It may not be just because you disagree with what he says. It may be because you really don't know who he is. True knowledge of who he is leads to this worship. Listen, the fact that God guides and the fact that God guards is only good news for people that are looking to him for direction. If you're searching for direction and you don't really know what to do in life and your arms are wide open to whatever what God would call you to do, then I would say keep wrestling with who Jesus is. Be honest with your struggles and work through it. God speaks. God doesn't need your help. God intervenes to guide people to himself. 
And if your good intentions cause you to veer off course, God has a way of interrupting our good intentions to bring us back to him, right? We serve a gracious and a good God. But listen, here's why I bring up Jesus is the most polarizing figure to live. That it's not just about the things that he says. It's about who he is and who it is that he claims to be. What polarization does is it does this. It gives two people the exact same data and they have two completely different responses. There's this story of two men that were shoe salesmen. They both go to an island. Both of them look and see on the island nobody has shoes. One goes back and says, it's hopeless. There's no market for shoes because nobody wears them. The other goes back and says, send shoes. Nobody's got them. The market's wide open. Same information, but two different responses. Right? The, you know, it starts off, Joseph and the wise men come and they're willing to take on stigma and shame. They're willing to give up their wealth because of who Jesus is. But I want you to know they're not the only characters in this story. God coming to guide and to guard um, is very good news if you're looking for direction. If you're already convinced that you have the right destination, God coming to guide and to guard is very, very bad news. Do you know why? Because he's going to disrupt what it is that you hope for. Here's what makes this story so ironic. What you have is these wise men traveling what some think are hundreds of miles to see this baby and give up gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And when they get to the front door, they don't have the key to get in. And do you know who they ask for advice? The scribes and the Pharisees. And the most ironic thing about this story is that they're the ones that have the scriptures. They're the ones that have the key to the front door. They have all this knowledge about God, but all of their knowledge about God doesn't produce a kneeling before this baby. So what it shows you and I, knowledge uh, about Jesus. Don't boast in your theology, in your rightness, how well I can see what God does. There's a group of folks who have it, And won't make the seven-mile journey to actually go and see him. Look here at Matthew 2, verse 3. It says this, when King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed. And then you see this next verse. And all Jerusalem with him. If Jerusalem had been waiting on a savior to save them from their bondage, Why would news that he came disturb them? I think here's why it would disturb them. For the same reason that when Moses delivered the children of Israel out of bondage and things got better before it got worse, they were mad at him. 
Their spirit was so broken. It's possible for your spirit to be so broken that you don't want good news because all that good news does is give you hope that, and you know that what it's like to live without hope. So you live life saying, I just don't want anything more bad to go on. And you live life just hoping for the avoidance of conflict, not believing that God can deliver. And if you look through history, what you'll find is they were probably disturbed because they knew that news of a king would lead Herod to do what he did and slaughter all of these babies. Herod was not just an insecure leader that fires people on his staff when he disagrees with them. You look at his life and what you find out, Herod had three sons, and under suspicion that they were all trying to take his throne, had them all killed. One son, he was on his deathbed five days from dying, and he had suspicion that his son was trying to take his throne, and he killed him. He had his brother killed. He had his favorite wife killed because he thought that they were trying to usurp the throne. And you probably had this group of folks that said, Man, if news comes in that there's somebody that's going to take the throne, things are going to get really bad for us. And though they were informed, they were indifferent to Jesus. But then you have Herod, a guy who's already king. He's already built the kingdom that he wants. And then news of a new king comes. Somebody that's going to come in. Herod had achieved the kingdom of the Jews by plotting and scheming. But they say, hey, here's somebody that was born king of the Jews. It's his birthright. And what you find is that if you already have your own kingdom, if you have determined the destination for your life, then news that Jesus wants to come in and lead things is not a treasure. It's a threat. It's not something that you celebrate. It's something that you want to make sure to eliminate at all costs. And so what he does... He says, just to be safe. There's a window where all these kids were born in. Let me just go to this town and wipe out all of them. Now we have to pause there for a bit. Right? We still are going to fly through, but this is something that will, like, especially if you're a parent, right, it can cause a little bit of angst, and you would just say, wait a minute. There's all these children that are getting ready to be slaughtered. God warns Joseph, and his family gets out. God could have warned all of them, and they all got out. But he didn't. Why why would God preserve the life of Jesus here at the expense of innocent children dying. I'm 
I bring up that question because it's really just a microcosm of a larger question. Why does a good God allow evil in this world? It's a complicated question with no easy answers. So I don't want to propose to give one as much as I want to do maybe to provide some small consolations as it relates to um, this. I think one of the things that's clear here that we see here in the text is that this tragedy shines or puts this dark cloud over what should have been a joyous occasion. Jesus coming into the world should have been something that was full of joy. But what this tragedy that was allowed to take place, what it does is it reminds you and I um, that Jesus came into a broken world. And his entrance into a broken world does not remove all tragedy instantly. But here's one thing that his entrance into a broken world does do. It provides hope that all that tragedy is going to come to an end one day. Matthew chapter 2, verse 17 and 18. Let's look here at this, and it says this, right? It talks about the kids that, that were slaughtered, and it says this. Then what was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping, and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children. And she refused to be consoled because they are no more. Jeremiah chapter 31, it comes from Jeremiah 31, verses 15 to 17. And all that it is, it's this prophecy that Israel was sent into exile. And you read through the rest of Jeremiah, and what you'll find is this is essentially the bad news of what takes place there. So verse 15 in Jeremiah takes this bad news. Rachel, she's going to weep and cry that her children are sent off into exiles, but then the rest of the Jeremiah passage says, but wait, there's hope. God's going to send somebody one day that's going to deliver these children from exile. What Matthew does here, the reason why he doesn't complete the sentence with Jeremiah's quote is because he completes the sentence with the story of Jesus. That Jesus is going to be the fulfillment. Jesus is the savior that's going to take us out of the exile, out of this brokenness that you and I feel. That Jesus is the person that God sent into the world who was preserved from death here in order to lead his people towards hope. But I want you to hear this, and here's what I think is the main point of all this. Look. We have these instances of Jesus miraculously being preserved from death. And Jesus was only preserved from a premature death because he was reserved for a particular one. 
Jesus was preserved from death because he was reserved from death. And here's what I mean by this. You go through this text and what you'll find is that Matthew is constantly going to talk about these dreams, 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 and how they're led. But the other word that's constantly put in there, what you'll see is fulfilled, fulfilled, fulfilled. He's constantly going to try to point you and I, our attention to the fact that all of what was written in the Bible was meant as an introduction to the life of Jesus. He's the one that fulfills all of it. So as Matthew is writing this gospel, he's not writing a cliffhanger. The Avengers came out this past week and there was this big thing, right? Don't spoil the movie. You tell folks the end and they're going to be frustrated because they're not going to be able to enjoy it as it goes on. That's not how this works. The Bible only really works and you only really see what God's trying to do if the end has been spoiled for you. Here's what I mean by that. You look at the life of Jesus, and all through this text, it's constantly going to say, yo, he was born like this, he was preserved and saved like this, so that scripture would be fulfilled, trying to help you and I know that God already had the end in mind, and if we had more time, we'd go through each one about how the virgin birth is proof that with God, there's no such thing as a dead end, that God does not need your help to accomplish his purposes in the world. If we had time, we would go through how Joseph going to Egypt and Jesus being called out of Egypt was meant for a group of people who was familiar with Moses' story and how God by himself delivered Israel from out of bondage without their help, that God was saying, I'm trying to talk about Jesus. Look, Jesus is actually going to be the better Moses. When it talks about a king being born out of Bethlehem, the tribe that was the least of the tribe, God is saying, I'm going to do a great reversal of things. The place that nobody would expect a king to come from because it's meager, God's saying, I'm going to send my king there. And the reversal doesn't stop there that Christ is a king is not going to be somebody that rules us with an iron fist, but he's going to take on the lowly role of a shepherd and feed sheep that are constantly going to go astray, constantly going to bite the hand of the one that feeds them. And he's trying to point all of this back to saying that it's all about Jesus. He brings all of this up so that you and I pay special attention to the miraculous way that Christ's life was preserved. And what you and I see is that God brought about his preservation through the obedience of imperfect people. And that we would see it four or five times in a row so that we would think, man, if Jesus could dodge all those bullets as a baby, depending on people, imagine what he could do with that power when he's grown up and he doesn't have to depend on anybody else. But do you know what we find out? 
is that this Savior who had a direct line of access to God seems like could have avoided all the pain and struggle and angst that comes as a result of making the wrong call? Do you know how Jesus lives his entire life? The Bible refers to him as a man of sorrow acquainted with grief. He doesn't live his life dodging all of the hard times. He lives his life, if this life was a landmine, Jesus doesn't say, follow me and I'll teach you how to avoid all of the landmines. Do you know what he does? He says, follow me and I'll step on all of the landmines. It's somebody that lived perfectly and knew what to avoid. The things to say, the things not to say. The people to cross, the people not to cross. The people to heal, the folks not to heal. The days to heal on and the days not to heal on. Do you know what you continually find him doing? Doing the thing that's going to cause the shame to come on him. The charges to come on him. Up until the very point where he's on the cross, and in Matthew 27, you'll have a group of folks that'll say this. Look at him. He saved everybody else, but he couldn't save himself. That was false. He could have saved himself. But do you know the way that he saved all of us? By volunteering to step on the land. By taking the sin, the punishment of the sin that you and I deserve. God preserved him for a premature death because he was reserved for a particular death that would pay for our sins. Matthew 27, the Pharisees say, let him call out to God to rescue him if God finds pleasure in him. And you would say, I wish you would have read his birth story because you would have found just how much pleasure God had in him in the way that he preserved him. But that was for then. This is for now. He was reserved. His life was lived. Listen. The angel said, call him Jesus because there's a particular thing that he's going to do. He's going to save his people not just from all the woes that exist here in the world, which he will do perfectly and completely in glory. And he gives us a foretaste of it now. But he was sent here to save us from our sins. As a king, he's going to come in and he's going to displace all lesser kingdoms. His death is going to serve as the means for us to enjoy a kingdom without fault. But we're not going to be the ones that run that kingdom. He is. 
Jesus is a king unlike any other. He's not like Herod fighting to secure his position, to preserve his power and his honor. He's willingly giving all of that up for you. For you. For you. That's that's the good news that changes everything. That's the narrative, the storyline that has the power to rearrange how you and I live. Jesus was preserved from death in this miraculous way because he was reserved for a death, for you, for your sins, so that everybody who puts their trust in him and lives their life trying to orient around the fact that he's the king of the world would enjoy the kingdom that he's trying to bring them in. And let me tell you, to put your trust in him is costly. Hear this. It will cost you everything. Your entire life. What is it that you deem right now to be most important? What is that one thing that you felt like if you had it, your life would be complete? Is it not just money? Is it the security that you think comes from? Not just being well thought of. Is it the security that comes from a good reputation in the eyes of others? Is it power? Is it control? Is it things? Jesus is going to require all of it. And so the reason why we started where we did here is that Jesus is going to say a lot of things throughout the rest of this book that you and I are going to have to wrestle with. But your biggest decision is not about what you think about what he says, but who you think that he is. What he says about your money, what he says about how you practice sexuality, what he says about how you manage your relationships, those, that's the least of your concern. Because if he really is who he says that he is, everything has to change. But if he's not who he says he is, Tim Keller said, what does all that stuff matter anyways? The good news is, is that once you see who he really is and what it is that he's done for you to bring him back to himself, what you'll find is that 
reputation doesn't mean as much as you thought that it was. Herod rose to power, used his armies to try to kill Jesus as a baby, and Herod died, and Jesus was still alive. And every other king or kingdom that challenges God's throne ends up the same way. But he's provided an opportunity for you and I to admit that I have not run the kingdom of my life the way that I should. I do not need you, God, to co-sign on the destination that I set. I need you to be the king and give my life a whole new direction. And for everybody that does it, do you know what we find? The life, the peace, the joy, the security that he earned but willingly forfeit for everybody that would be a part of his kingdom. You had a reservation with death. The waiter came up and called your name. And Jesus stepped in and took that reservation for you. It's such good news from a great king. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. that you sent your son into the world and the fact that he dodged the obstacles that came at him was not based on luck. It was all part of your plan, Father, to show that even people that are adversaries only serve to advance your glory, your will, your purpose your purposes, Father. I pray that you would help us to be those, Father, that don't spend our lives trying to work for you and earn your love that way, but we would be those that are amazed at the beautiful picture of your son and that we would do our best to orient our lives around him and to trust him every step of the way, knowing that following you is costly but it's always worth it, Father. Would you remind us of the eternity and the joy that you've secured for us, for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.